all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome back to Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of pediatrics and internal medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Well, we're not live on the air this morning, so we aren't taking your phone calls. Instead, Southern Remedy producer Kevin Farrell is helping me go through some recent emails we've received. Our email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. Well, good morning, Kevin. Good morning, Dr. Jimmy. Always appreciate you coming in and doing this little extra work there so we can uh, give some folks some information even when you're not in the studio with us. And I need to start out with uh, somewhat of an apology. Uh, For a while, I kind of let the email box go unattended, but I've done a better job. So uh, not only will we use these emails on these shows like this, but I'm trying to do a better job of if someone sends an email during the show, we'll either to take it live on the show, or you've been doing a great job of actually responding uh, to those emails, uh, sending a personal response. So if you listen to the show and you can't get in on the phone call, we're doing a, I'm doing a better job of making sure that we get your emails answered. So yeah, process, uh, you know, it's one of the things I deal with day in and day out. So going through a different process of doing things and, and relooking at that. So we do apologize for, uh, for that, but we do want to get this information out there. It's just as important as the calls. I mean, that mm-hmm. really can be beneficial. So we've tried to pick some emails that we felt like were uh, beneficial for our larger audience to hear. All right. Uh, This first one says, uh, my husband received low testosterone levels on his recent blood work. He's only slightly overweight and 36 years old. What kind of treatment should we expect or research? So a common question uh, among males, and uh, it's interesting that um, that uh, his wife uh, sent this to us because a lot of times that happens in the office. Uh, so they'll come in, patient will come in, male patient with his wife. And um, so testosterone, as most people know, is a, is a male-type hormone. So it's responsible for giving, uh, for doing a lot of different things, for normal functioning of sexual function in males, for some of the secondary sex characteristics, increased hair on the face, sort of body build, lean body mass, lots of different things that testosterone does. But like every hormone, uh, you can have some problems with either an overproduction or an underproduction. So in this case, low testosterone, people call it all kinds of different things, low T, um, that's all over the place. A lot of people are really looking at this, particularly if you're sort of middle-aged man and you've got some sort of mild symptoms of fatigue or uh, sexual dysfunction. Um, so that there's a lot of interest in this area of whether or not if, if you can replace that hormone level. And I will say, you know, just right off the bat, that it is overused. Um, a lot of clinics uh, do this. You do have to have a prescription to do it. You can get testosterone over the counter. In fact, I've seen that, uh, you know, it's illegal um, uh, by over-the-counter, I mean through the Internet, basically. And I've seen a couple of cases of severe liver damage from that. Um, but in normal people, testosterone tends to 
uh, decrease as a male ages anyway. So there's a broad range. If you test for it, like with a blood test is how you would test for it, there's a range of testosterone in there. And generally the lower end of that is anywhere from 200 to 250. And, um, in this case, in your 30s, you still should have a pretty, you know, adequate adequate amounts of testosterone. In some people, however, in some males, uh, the glands that uh, produce testosterone, which are your testes and the, the system that helps regulate that, there may be a problem with that where it doesn't produce a whole lot. Usually, 90 plus percent of the time, uh, where it's a big problem where you would want to replace that, those hormone levels, you're going to have symptoms. And those symptoms, are, you know, again, can be fatigue, they can be sexual dysfunction, but you need to have those symptoms to really go along with it. What we don't know is if it's beneficial if somebody has low testosterone, in, say, in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and they don't have any symptoms, is that do you need to do anything? And most endocrinologists, which are the experts in this area, would say, no, you don't, unless they have symptoms. Um, the same thing, if you have symptoms and you have normal testosterone levels, you really don't need to replace it. I mean, you can run into a lot of side effects. If you get too much testosterone, uh, there's a risk of increasing your blood pressure, of increasing the amount of uh, red blood cells that you have in your bloodstream to the point where you're going to have some sort of sludging of those blood cells. So it's not a benign thing, even if you can get it over the Internet. Uh, the email mentions that uh, they were checked on a recent blood work, and I know uh, when I get my annual wellness check, I get, you know, the blood work, but I don't ever remember seeing testosterone levels on the report. Is that something that you have to specifically ask for, and then should men at a certain age begin to have that looked at? It's not It's not recommended as a routine screening uh, uh, blood blood test. So if you go in for your regular wellness visit, that's not going to be one that they test on a regular basis unless you have the symptoms. So if you have symptoms, it should be checked. Now, I know a lot of physicians and a lot of clinics are going to do that. And they're like, hey, you need to get this checked, but you can check a lot of stuff and you're going to pay for it. Insurance is really not going to cover that either. Um, but that's not something that based on the current level of evidence, that's not something that would be a routine testing, say, in the general population in males. This is Southern Remedy. I'm Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Jimmy, and we're going through some emails that we received recently. You can always send an email to the show. It's remedy at mpbonline.org. Our next email says, thanks for mentioning that endoscopy is the definite test for dis diagnosing H. pylori. Uh, we believe that my dad may have had it for more than 25 years. He passed away after duodenal ulcer surgery in 1968. I understand that the H. pylori ulcer connection was not well known until the early 80s. Antibiotics possibly could have improved his quality of life and extended his life. First of all, my pronunciation is a little, we went over a lot that. Of, and I a lot of big I, doctor <laughs> words there. You did good, you did good Kevin. Doing That's my good. best, doing my best. So talk <laughs> a little bit about this one. Yeah, so uh, stomach ulcers or ulcers in the upper part of the GI tract are uh, fairly common. Uh, a lot of people have problems with that from time to time. And basically, you know, just to go over sort of what normally happens in the area. So, you know, the stomach produces uh, acids to help break down foods. And it normally has a nice uh, mucus lining that helps protect those cells because it's it's got a pH of about two. So that's 
that's uh, pretty low. It's pretty acidic environment. And then those contents, they move down into the, the first part of the intestines, the duodenum, so or, or duodenum. Some people pronounce it that way. So um, the, that first part of the intestine sometimes can be susceptible to uh, erosions of that lining in that tube. Um, and you can have the same thing in the stomach. So the word H. pylori, Helicobacter pylori, is a bacteria that it likes to live in the in the stomach in that environment or the first part of the duodenum, uh, the the first part of the um, of the intestines. Th- the reason that it does so well there is it has some protective mechanisms to protect it in that acid environment. I mean, a lot of things won't last. A lot of bacteria get killed in that acid environment. That's one of the other reasons for having it there. Now, uh, what we've what we've known again, and that our emailer brought this up in the '80s and '90s, we really started to recognize that H. pylori was a factor uh, in in helping produce some of these ulcerations to the point where you'd have problems, where you'd have to take medications. And even if you took medications to decrease the acid content, you wouldn't necessarily clear up the ulcer unless you treat. Uh, uh, with antibiotics and other medications, uh, you, you try to eradicate the H. pylori bacterium. So that's what she's alluding to there. And a lot of people had recurrent ulcers. Uh, now, you can get ulcers from any kind of you know reason. There's a lot of risk factors go along with that. Certainly smoking, alcohol intake, that's going to put you at an increased risk. So we're not talking about those things. But in somebody who does not have the the response that you would predict from some of the antacid uh, treatments for uh, normal gastritis, normal erosion there, those are the people that uh, that you'd want to look for that. And there are a couple of ways to do it. Gastroenterologists will do what's called an EGD or an endoscopic gastroduodenoscopy. So they take this tube, they give you something to sort of knock you out a little bit or at least where you won't remember things. They put it down your throat into this, the, the, so they can look at, directly look at the lining of your esophagus, look at the lining of the stomach and the first part of the intestines. And what they're looking for is these little erosions. So it looks like it looks like a Jackson. If you don't live in Jackson, you don't have you don't have you know, privy to this. But I, I experienced this this morning. It looks like a big pothole is what it looks like, and it's angry. It's red. It could be bleeding. And then they'll take biopsies of that. And the biopsy is a couple of different reasons. Number one, they're looking for cancer. Sometimes cancers can look the same way, uh, gastric cancers and duodenal cancers, or uh, they're checking for this bacterium. So they'll try to grow that out in, in media and see if they're positive. And if you're positive, they'll put you on so, several different medications. It's not just one. It's actually, now they come in sort of like a nice one, like one that's called a Prev Pack, uh, where it, it has a combination of antacids and antibiotics together. And you have to take that. Sometimes it takes several rounds to eradicate that. Now, there is another test. There's a stool test that tests for the antigen. That's like sort of a piece of the, the H. pylori that's left over that goes through into the stool. And that's pretty accurate, too, so that you don't have to do that EGD, that in, uh, invasive endoscopy. But, uh, yeah, you need to be aware of that. If you've had recurrent ulcers, I'm sure your physician may have done that. You can actually do the H. pylori stool testing. You don't have to go to a gastroenterologist. Your regular physician or nurse practitioner can order that. All right. Uh, only got a couple minutes left in this segment, so sure. maybe we could talk a little bit more about ulcers. Um, what What is an ulcer, and are there some sign or symptoms that someone might be experiencing that maybe makes them think that they might be getting an ulcer and maybe need to check up on that? 
almost everybody has uh, has experienced this sensation of eating something that's spicy. Maybe it's some peppers in your garden that have two million Schofield units or something like that. Or if it's just certain uh, things like excess caffeine or chocolate, there's a lot of things that, that will induce excess acid production. And you'll get a little bit of heartburn. So that's usually burning in the lower part of the chest or the upper part of the abdomen. Uh, most people say it just feels like it's burning. That's why we call it heartburn. And it usually goes away after, you know, 10, 15 minutes, sometimes a couple of hours. Those individuals where it doesn't go away or it's recurrent, that's the people where, you know, we, we start to worry, is this an erosion, uh, sort of pothole in the stomach or in the, um, in the first part of the intestine? And those are the people that you need to get a little bit more aggressive with and maybe even see a gastroenterologist. All right, it's time for a break. This is an all-email show. Dr. Jimmy can't be in the studio this week, so we've gone to one of our production facilities here at MPB, and we're recording this in advance. Uh, If you have an email question that you'd like to have answered, you can send it to remedy at mpbonline.org. After the break, we'll be back with more of your recent emails to Southern Remedy. podcast. Welcome back to Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy, professor of pediatrics and internal medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Well, we're not live this morning, but we uh, are, and we're unable to take your calls. Instead, uh, Southern Remedy producer Kevin Farrell is helping me go through some recent emails. And uh, our email address that you can email anytime is remedy at mpbonline.org. What do we got next, Kevin? All right. This next one says, I've had hemochromatosis about 15 years. I'm now 70. When I have my iron tested now, it doesn't seem to be going up as it much as it did before. Is that unusual? Can you sort of outgrow the need for phlebotomies? We've got all these big words that we're we're <laughs> going to try to pronounce. Sometimes I get them wrong, too. Hemochromatosis. So hemochromatosis is iron overload. So iron is a substance that the body utilizes uh, in um, a molecule called hemoglobin. And that is uh, basically what red blood cells have inside. So it's what gives your blood that red color. That's that's iron. Uh, and it's uh, it binds oxygen and then releases it to cells. So it picks it up in the lungs and then uh, releases that where it's needed. So you do need some iron. You certainly can have uh, iron deficiency or not enough iron. But hemochromatosis is the opposite of that. So you get too much of it. Too much of a good thing has problems. Uh, that's a, probably a good axiom in a lot of different things. So if you have too much iron in the body, it ends up getting deposited 
Uh, just like if you put too much salt in a liquid, eventually that salt's going to come out of solution if you keep adding it to it. Same thing with iron. And it gets deposited in a number of tissues, like soft tissues, like the liver, uh, the uh, heart, uh, your adrenal glands, which are in your stomach, uh, joints like uh, um, uh, your um, joints in your hands or your um, or your feet or, or knees, your pancreas, which produces insulin and helps break down some things. So it can it can go a lot of different places. And the the three sort of characteristics of what makes doctors think about that, and, and these aren't as common, but it's sort of the the characteristic way that diseases present. We sort of um, I like to like to do those things. It's bronzing of the skin, uh, cirrhosis of the liver, so liver failure, and diabetes. So those three things together, we tend to at least think about that. And the bronzing of the skin is just because there's deposition in the skin, too. So these people look like they have a great tan. Um, so, so what do you do for that? Well, first of all, what causes that? So most of these cases are hereditary. And it takes time to develop this. So usually if you're a male, your diagnosis would be somewhere in your 30s or 40s. And then females are about a decade after that. And a lot of the reasons for that is a lot of the symptoms, initial symptoms that you'll get sort of mimic menopause symptoms. So it tends to get sort of pushed to the back of, of a physician's mind about something, you know, things that, that might be going on. Um, honestly, the the... the the it's variable. A lot of people, like one person can have the gene. This is a genetic um, 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 disease so that you would inherit it. So you, you oftentimes, if you take a good history, you'll find it in other family members that they've had similar uh, symptoms that may have been diagnosed with the same thing. But about, um, uh, you know, if you do have the gene for it, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have a, a bad course. So people can have the same genes, but just because of their makeup, they, uh, their genetic makeup and how their body works, they may not have as severe a case of something. Uh, generally speaking, the phlebotomies, that's the other big word there that was in the email. So that's basically you take off blood and you discard it. So it's like giving blood, basically. So uh, that is uh, the treatment for severe hemochromatosis, and you're basically just getting rid of iron. You want to eliminate a lot of the iron in the diet as much as, you know, to try to cut back on that. So certainly no iron supplements. Uh, maybe limit how much iron you're getting in your diet. But really, the phlebotomies, the, the just taking blood off tends to work. Now, as as this uh, emailer said, you know, they haven't had to, to do that as much. As you get older, that's pretty common that which, where you won't have to have as many phlebotomies over time. So you don't really outgrow it. It's just the body's normal way of, of processing iron that changes over time, even if you have hemochromatosis. But it is something that's, you know, you do need to, to uh, keep an eye on it. And left undiagnosed, it can cause a lot of problems. And I guess, you know, if everyone's ever cut their lip or maybe accidentally taste your blood if you cut yourself or whatever, that, that iron, there's that little bit of an iron yeah. sort of taste yeah, yeah. to it as well. Yeah. All right. And so uh, it's important to have iron, not too much, not too little. But uh, so when we talk about maybe trying to have a healthy diet, are there some foods that would be good sources of iron in our diet? So typically, uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, certainly red meat uh, has a lot of heme in it. And uh, if you think about that, and again, the red color we get in our meats, that's, that's, um, that's hemoglobin, or it's, a, it's, it's similar to that. So most mammal, all mammals have hemoglobin uh, or a derivative of it. It's a little bit different, uh, but they utilize iron. Uh, so, so that's one source. Uh, actually, you can get a good bit of iron in iron-fortified food, so a lot of grains will have that. 
Um, anything that comes from the soil may have a little bit of that in it too, just because of what plants absorb. Uh, so it's pretty easy to look at and you don't need a whole lot as long as you're not losing too much. So the other end of the spectrum, if you have low iron levels or anemia, uh, iron deficiency anemia, there's different types of anemias, but iron deficiency is probably the most common. Um, then you need more iron, and that can be supplements. The problem with the supplements, though, and uh, what is prescribed is causes constipation, causes a lot of GI upset, um, so it, it, it can be a problem. There's a great study about taking iron every other day um, that, that uh, was much better tolerated, so you may want to—I know we've, uh, we've uh, had a, at least one caller that I remember that we've uh, advocated for that if, you, uh, if you're having problems taking those supplements. But uh, yeah, so it, 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 you don't necessarily have to eat a steak every day um, to get a lot of iron. Um, and it, there is a limit to what your body can absorb. Um, and uh, I don't have that off the top of my head, but there, you know, you don't, <laughs> a lot of people will say, well, if I just eat three steaks a day, um, <laughs> you might want to, yeah, the Mississippi State Fair is going on. <laughs> when it, when it rolls into town, you can, uh, you can do that, but you no, know, it, you don't have to do that. Look for the big cow. That's, that's right. Plenty there. <laughs> uh, this is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio and I'll email show today. Uh, if you ever have a question that you want email answered, just send it to remedy at mpbonline.org. Our next one says a seven year old friend recently had x-rays on his back. He was seeking pain relief from a chiropractor and it was his first visit. The x-rays revealed significant degenerative disc disease for the entire length of the spine. He had little to no discs remaining. He was told there was nothing that could be done by the chiropractor to relieve the pain and sound on his way. He does on occasion take ibuprofen, but not very often. It gives him relief. He's reluctant to take medication, and he's very physically active on his farm. My friend does not want a surgery option for this problem. Two questions. Is there a type of doctor you would recommend he seek out for care with a problem like this? And secondly, he's considering getting an inversion table to see if it gives relief. Uh, is this a potentially dangerous approach? Could it hurt him or cause problems with the use of his legs? So thoughts on that one? Yeah. So back pain, and particularly low back pain, is a common finding in um, in individuals who are in this age range. So once you get up to around age fifty and above, that's pretty common. And the the anatomy of the spine. So basically, we have we have all these different vertebrae. So those are the the bony uh, parts of our back that give us structure. They uh, help uh, you know um, with movement because muscles attach to them. They give us a lot of movement. If you think about the spine, it has rotational abilities, and when it's working normally, you can bend forward, uh, back, you can bend sideways. So there's a lot of mobility that the spine handles, uh, and then gives us that rigidity that we need to sit upright or or to walk and those kinds of things. But uh, in between those vertebrae, we have discs. Now, discs are sort of the cushions in between there. So you have to have that, and that allows us to move. You know, bones don't actually move. They have articulations with other bones. That's where they come together, and that's how they move. So with the back, you have these discs that help with cushioning in between there. And of course, your spinal cord runs through uh, your spine, your uh, ver vertebral bodies, and then it has all these nerves that come out to the rest of the body, uh, and uh, that causes a lot of problems as we get older. Because if you have overuse of those uh, those bones, you can get little outgrowths. We call those bone spurs, as, as you know, or sclerotic re, uh, sclerotic areas of the bone. And sometimes those can press on uh, on adjacent nerves. 
or those discs can degenerate over time. And if they degenerate, they can sort of poke out against um, uh, an adjacent nerve and cause that's what causes pain. And sometimes it can be the problem can be in the back, but you'll have pain down your legs. So sciatic pain is sort of like that or other pain that, that presses on those nerves. Now at 70, I do think it's probably a good idea to avoid surgery unless you absolutely have to have it. There are a couple of situations where it might help, but if it's a bulging disc or if you've got an x-ray that, uh, that, that shows, uh, you know, sort of what they described in the email, uh, you know, multiple uh, levels uh, of having problems like that from just osteoarthritis and overuse, is, the surgery is probably not going to help too much. Staying active, which I'm glad to hear this person is staying very active on their farm, uh, is very important. Um, we know that if you stop moving and you just stay in your bed all day long, back pain tends to get worse and your overall health can decline too. So as much as you can stay moving, that's one of our goals of therapy. As far as a physician to see, certainly an orthopedic surgeon can sort of give you some advice and point you in the right direction. Uh, you know, beyond surgery, though, there are some individual uh, clinics and different things that you might want to explore. And one is a pain clinic. So pain clinics can do all kinds of different things to help relieve chronic pain, particularly in the spine and the back. And there may be some things that they can do. You know, a lot of people say, I don't want to go to a pain clinic because they're just going to give me medication. I'm going to be all doped up. Well, that's not the case, and they tend to try to avoid that as much as possible. But there may be some things that they can do along the spine. So there's all kinds of injections and other modalities. And physical therapists, now a physical therapist is not necessarily a physician, uh, but they can help you stabilize that spine by giving you some things to do, even if you're active um, that can help take the some of the stressors off the spine and put it on the muscles around there. So doing that can help, you know, put things back in line um, a, a little bit beyond things like chiropractic uh, manipulation. Uh, it really does help out to see a physical therapist because they can that you almost always improve. All right, so let's hold the second part of that question about the inversion table till after this break. And also, it's good to know, you know, I'm in my late 50s now, and I seem to wake up every morning, and I've got that lower back pain. Well, it's kind of a relief to know maybe that's just natural. And you're right, once you get up and get going around, for I think for the most of us, it kind of goes gets better. Yeah. yeah. All right, time to take a break. When we get back, we'll continue going through some recent emails. You're listening to Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Back with more after this. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome back to Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy here with you this morning. And we're not live, uh, so we're not able to take your phone calls. But instead, Southern Remedy producer Kevin Farrell and myself are going through some recent emails that we've received. Our email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. 
All right, uh, Dr. Jimmy, we're kind of continuing an email question we had in the last segment. It was talking about uh, back pain and degenerative disc disease. Uh, the second question from the email is that the the person who the emailer knows was a 70-year-old man, and he was considering getting an inversion table to see if it gives relief from his back pain. And the questions are, is it potentially dangerous? Uh, could it hurt him or cause problems with the use of his legs? And they think the obvious problem is falling off of the thing. So first, if you would give us a quick idea of what an inversion table is, and then um, maybe if you think that's a good idea. Sure. Inversion tables, uh, the best way to describe this, it, it almost looks like a medieval torture device. <laughs> um, so that back in the, in the 70s and 80s, a lot of people did this, that you had inversion boots, mm-hmm. which you would hang upside down, sort of gives, you know, I don't know if anybody remembers the movie, the original movie, Batman with Michael Keaton, but there's one scene in there where he's hanging from uh, from his inversion boots like a bat uh, upside down. Inversion tables sort of do the same thing. So basically you lay on this table, this device, and it flips. So it flips you. It's, it locks you in. So usually you're, you know, your ankles are, are supported. And then you flip upside down. And the thought process here, it's like traction, you know. So it's you, you're, you're using gravity to sort of lengthen out the spine, and uh, there's been a couple of studies looking at, you know, pain relief. Certainly it's not, it's not going to change what happens to the spine, uh, even if you do that several times a day. You, you can have problems. A 70-year-old, I probably would discourage from doing something like that just because, yeah, you do run the risk of if you don't do it correctly, you could, you could end up uh, falling. Uh, certainly there's a high fracture risk in doing something like that. Um, and it can put a lot of different stressors on those vertebrae that if they're not used to it, they just, you know, it's, it, it may end up tearing something. Uh, so I would, I would not advocate doing that. Uh, again, there's lots of other things you can do. And if you don't even, you know, if, you, if you're not quite to that point, what about the person who's 40 or 50 and they have back pain? What can they do? They wake up every morning and you're like, ah, oh, that hurts uh, like I did this morning. So there are some stretching, certainly, you know, stretching exercises. And again, a, a physical therapist can do wonders. So if you tell your physician, hey, I'd like to go to physical therapy. I've been having some low back pain. That's probably the best thing that you can do. Uh, you can take, you know, just some over-the-counter uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen, Advil, um, Aleve. I wouldn't if you're taking that every day that's probably not a good uh, that's probably not a good thing cuz it can do long-term damage. Tylenol is okay to take uh just uh you know intermittently also. But the physical therapist can help develop some exercises that you can do at home and it's probably a good idea to for them to watch you do that first. A lot of people say, "Well, I can just Google that and do that." Well, you can, but you really need a coach to show you what you're doing. Posture is a big deal. We know that most people with back pain, if they sit for long periods of time, it tends to be worse. There are a couple of different categories where it's just the opposite. Um, and, and, and certainly if you need to lose weight, just because that puts a lot of pressure and a lot of weight on joints in different ways. Uh, so all those things together can, can help. There's not really anything you can take over the counter like a... Um, a supplement that's going to help that. There's been a lot of studies looking at those kinds of things, but certainly mobility is a big a big thing that you'd want to do. Uh, you know, you talked about posture, and that's for sure. You know, like I mentioned the last break, I occasionally have that that back pain when I get up in the morning. And last Saturday, went down to Hattiesburg for the USM homecoming football game, and three hours in a football stadium bleachers is not good for the lower now, back ble- either. Bleachers were not designed. <laughs> 
for back pain. <laughs> also, I would say a friend of mine that had sort of chronic back problems did have an inversion table. It worked for him. But my thought on something like that is those those are very expensive. Yeah. And you would hate to spend a whole lot of money on something and then find out it doesn't really work for you. Sure. So... Yeah, um, it, and there's a lot of you know things like that and stretches and uh, there, <laughs> I mean, it really does look like some kind of medieval torture device. Some of them, uh, even things like water therapy can help, and uh, the warmth of the water, the movement that you can do, uh, you know, and sort of eliminate gravity's effects while you're doing that. Uh, those are all kinds of things that can help out with back pain. And the boots, I don't even want to think about that. So <laughs> They're heavy. <laughs> this is Southern Remedy. We're, it's an all-email show today. Uh, Dr. Jimmy is not in studio during this broadcast, so we're actually recording this ahead of time in one of our production facilities. Uh, by the way, if you ever have an email question that you need answered, send it to remedy at mpbonline.org. All right, so our next one says uh, that uh, you provided the emailer with some suggestions on how to find a doctor. Uh, 66 years old, live about 45 minutes from Tupelo, but running into a few snags. One person's physician closed her practice. Another person's physician who works at IMA no longer accepts new patients or sees existing patients in the Tupelo Hospital. Today I talked on uh, the phone with a Tupelo clinic that will accept me as a new patient with Medicare, but their physicians do not see their patients at the Tupelo Hospital. A little bit discouraged and confused, so the question is, how important is it to have a primary physician who can see you if you're admitted to a hospital? So I'm a big advocate for having a primary physician or nurse practitioner that sees you. You need to have the same person that's, uh, you know, in the same team that's seeing you from time to time. Uh, but medicine has changed. So I'm, I'm glad you did find somebody like that. Um, if you don't have a regular person and you're just going in and seeing somebody different, particularly as you get older, it's always a good idea just to see the same person because they're going to know your history. They're going to be familiar with what's going on. Uh, even with electronic medical records, which have improved things now because we have access to so much different information, that doesn't take the place of having that relationship with somebody uh, where you know that's that's my physician, that's the person I can go to. Now, uh, one thing that has changed in the medical landscape, though, is outpatient treatment and inpatient treatment. Now, 20, 30, 40 years ago, you had you had your doctor. And that physician went to see you. you. You went to see them in clinic. But if you were admitted to the hospital um, through the ER or through their office, they would continue to see you in the hospital. And uh, this is sort of the way I trained. Uh, you know, it was sort of it was changing at that time. Uh, so back in the in the nineties and two thousands. But most hospitals now, if you're admitted to the hospital. Uh, there may be some instances where your physician will be seeing you, but a lot of the times it's somebody else that's a hospitalist or somebody that just sees patients that are admitted to the hospital. And there is some advantage to this. Um, you can get a lot more done for a patient in the hospital if, say, if my patient is admitted from clinic and I go see them, I'm going to have to go to clinic and then I'm going to have to go to the hospital after that. There's a delay in services or orders and those kinds of things. It sort of slows things down. So there's a lot of reasons why hospitalists were uh, sort of uh, where, where people started to focus on inpatient management of patients. Uh, and outcomes can be better, too. You can have a much shorter stay in the hospital and better outcomes if you have somebody who that's pretty much all they do. They're sort of a specialist for people who are admitted to the hospital. So the the question was, do you need somebody? You know, is that something that you really need? You may not like it that you're not that you're having to see somebody different. And it may sound like I'm 
you know, now talking out of both sides of my mouth saying you need somebody who knows you, but then when you go in the hospital, you may not have that person. Uh, I do think it is is okay to do that just because, again, the benefits of having somebody who's sort of a specialist in that area with hospital medicine sort of outweighs uh, the, the, the benefits of having the same person who knows you. And there's, again, there's ways that you can communicate now uh, that we didn't have 30 years ago, certainly electronic ways. Uh, if one of my patients is admitted to the hospital, I get a notification immediately about that in the electronic medical record we have. Um, the physician oftentimes will communicate with me electronically, so I get that within a couple of hours, uh, you know, just looking at day-to-day or even sooner than that, uh, you know, different different other communications that are even faster than that. So uh, that communication is important between those physicians. And, you know, just, you know, about a primary care person, I'm speaking from a patient and in my personal experience, you know, years ago, I used to always think, well, you know, when I have something, I'll just go to MEA, which right. they do a right. good job. But, you know, it's you get this doctor this time and then the next time you might go to a different location or a different doctor and that sort of thing. And I've discovered that when you have someone that is your regular health care provider, that it makes in, in my case, it made me feel more comfortable because the doctors, you doctors do a good job of during a visit chatting up you know you talk about what your job does what the weather's like that sort of thing so like i say when i had this person that you go back to you feel more comfortable and in my case i think if you're more comfortable with your doctor you're more likely to be honest about things and maybe admit things that, like bad behavior sometimes i think sure. if it's if it's somebody you don't know you think well i don't want to tell him i i'm eating too much you know fast food or whatever but if yeah. it's someone that you've developed that relationship with it's it's a it's a more friendly relationship. So talk a little bit. Uh, we got uh, maybe a couple minutes left in this break, but maybe if you could talk about that uh, importance of developing that good relationship with your healthcare provider. Yeah, it, well, it's key. So because of the, all the reasons that you said, you know, if you think about this in other areas of people's lives, if you go to the bank and want to take out a loan, you want to go to the same person every time. Do they know you? They do business with you. I mean, this is no different. And certainly, when you're talking about your health or your family's health, you want to go to somebody who knows you. So there's a couple of different issues with that. Um, access to that person, of course, if you <laughs> if you're a successful physician, you're going to have a busy clinic. Uh, or a busy, you know, whatever you do, uh, because people want to co- will want to come and see you. Well, that that limits a little bit of the access to people. So people, when they want to be seen, instead of going somewhere that's sort of a quick care type clinic situation where they may not know that person, but they're going to have quick access. Certainly, I understand that, and the whole that's the reason why we have emergency departments and emergency rooms and, and hospitals is for those kinds of things. But I I, I think Kevin, you're right. I, it, having that relationship with somebody who knows you, who knows what you want, you know some. My older patients, they are very distrustful of other people that see them uh, just because they say, you know, I don't want to have to go over all the things. You know, what's listed in in our normal thought process of something uh, that we may want to treat, um, I know that some of my patients are, they have, they have uh, different beliefs about that or different things that I would respect because I know them and I know what they would want. And, you know, if you see somebody else, that's not necessarily the case. You may have to go over that. So it is important to have that one person if you can. Certainly there are some situations where access might be a problem and they would need to see somebody else. 
All right. This is Southern Remedy. It's an all-email show, and it's time for the last break of this hour. When we get back, we'll wrap up with a couple more of your emails. And a reminder that if you ever need to email a question to Dr. Jimmy, it's remedy at mpbonline.org. And we'll be back to wrap up. We'll be back to wrap up this show after this break. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome back to Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. We are not live today. We've been going over some emails with the help of Kevin Farrell, our Southern Remedy producer. Uh, We do this from time to time when we cannot be live, so we're not taking any calls right now. But uh, we do want to respect people's emails and try to answer those uh, individually and uh, love to share those because it can be good for our listening audience. All right. Uh, So, Dr. Jimmy, before the break, we were talking about uh, the need for a primary care physician. And you were saying that it's a good idea to establish that relationship with one health care provider. Some related to that, uh, I used to have... Uh, you know, accounts at a pharmacy, at, uh, it was at Fred's and at Walgreens and that sort of thing. And I, I can't remember who, but someone, some wise person told me that that's not a very good idea and that you really should probably only have one pharmacist. Is that a good idea? And if so, why? Yeah, and I, I would extend that to the whole healthcare team. So, uh, you know, I was just thinking about our nurses in clinic that we have that uh, they know our patients and they know. Uh, when, uh, you know, Mrs. I'm just making up names here. When Mrs. Smith calls with a problem, it's it's a real problem because uh, she may not do that from time to time. But, you know, Mr. Jones, uh, that may have different things that are going on with him. So, uh, yeah, I think having the same person, but a pharmacist, if you think about it. So a pharmacist role in your health care can be huge, particularly if you're on med- multiple medications. Uh, it's great to have that person that uh, that knows you, knows what medications you're on, beyond just looking it up in the computer, and then they can give you advice on a lot of different things too. Um, and just having that friendly face uh, that you see time and time, you know, time in time out, uh, when you go to the pharmacy can be huge in uh, in that security with your health care, um, but. Sometimes, you know, I've heard the, the argument that, uh, well, we have standardization of things. Like when you when you fly on an airline, uh, you don't have the same pilot every time. But we have standardization of what every pilot is trained to do. And we do have that in the healthcare industry, and we know that, that it creates a, a safer environment. However, it's nice to, you know, even those pilots that you have, the, they greet you uh, at the end of that flight, um, and there's a reason for that. That establishes at least a little bit of a relationship, and they talk to you overhead. Um, and having that really, it's it's what we call a therapeutic relationship with patients. And the whole health healthcare team, whether that's a pharmacist or a nurse or a physician or a nurse practitioner, that those are those are important um, relationships that you have. And having some continuity with that over time, you you definitely have better health health outcomes from that. All right. Uh, Here's our next email, and it says, I've been recommended by my orthopedic surgeon for an injection of 
Synvisc 1 into my right knee for osteoarthritis pain. Uh, the emailer did some research. Uh, uh, there was a study, but it was only 253 subjects have received the Highland GF20 injection, and the results were 6% had mild side effects. Uh, one subject came down with the flu. So two questions here. Is this procedure experimental or FDA approved, and what is the relative safety of this? Yeah, so injections into joints uh, have been around for a good while. There's different uh, different things that have been looked at. Still having a lot of uh, a lot of research around this area. So this is generally uh, done in the office. If you're talking about, you know, you you can have your regular doctor do this. I've actually, you know, have been trained to do this in the past. Don't do it a whole lot now, but. Um, uh, injections of things like steroids can help, particularly with osteoarthritis. And basically what you're doing is you're decreasing the inflammatory response within that joint space. And you can get a, you know, some pain relief with that. Uh, you, you're not going to change that joint breaking down over time. If it's a knee, say, you know, that's, that's not going to be something that you're going to reverse those changes by getting that, that injection. And with the problem with steroids is, uh, you know, with individuals that are more susceptible to some of the side effects with steroids, uh, they may see some some increased side effects like increased blood sugar in a diabetic that, that gets that. And you can only get about two to three of these a year at, at the most. And even then, there's some deleterious effects downstream. So there's these other substances, though, like Synvisc was mentioned, and that's the uh, high, and this is one of those I can't say, Kevin. So, uh, <laughs> high aluronic acid. I have to slow down when I say it. Um, so this is, uh, it's, it's a substance that's been thought of to, uh, sort of be a lubricant. If you, you know, think about that and it decreases in, uh, in, um, some animal studies, it decreases the amount of inflammation in joints. So Synvisc is another name for it. So that's injected into the joint space. And again, it's sort of a wash. Some people say, hey, I feel better. Some people are like, well, I didn't do anything. Um, generally speaking, that's in the realm of orthopedic surgery. So it would be an orthopedic surgery clinic that does that. Uh, there have been some side effects. Getting the flu, that's a stretch. Feeling like you have the flu, not a, not a stretch. That's certainly a side effect that's been associated with it. Uh, you can have some other things that happen. Certainly anytime you inject in a joint space, there's a little bit of risk of infection that goes along with that. There are a couple of things, though, that they're looking at. One uh, is um, uh, you know, using anti-rheumatic drugs. So these are things like methotrexate and tumor necrosis factor inhibitors. So those are things that we use to treat things like rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, but they're looking at the inflammatory type arthritis. If you can inject that into the joint space itself, what does that do? So that you do, do re, uh, you do, you decrease the side effects that you have systemically if you're, you know, taking it uh, uh, somewhere else. But sort of mixed results right now from those trials, but uh, a lot of things have been looked at uh, to inject into those spaces. All right. Uh, we've got about three minutes left in this segment, and we'll, I think we can time for this one final email. And it says, I'm a 32-year-old female and have always had a decreased libido. I'm taking an SNRI, but I've even discontinued use before doing due to this. It's no better off the meds. Could I benefit from a transdermal testosterone product? So decreased libido in females, uh, we mentioned males earlier in sort of testosterone replacement. So uh, you you can measure testosterone levels are usually lower in females. And with uh, libido, a lot of people would say, hey, you need a little, at least a little bit of that. 
Uh, it much less known about the effects of this long term in women. Uh, just because in higher doses it, it can cause a lot of problems. You can have uh, a lot of the secondary sex characteristics of males that pop up on females. So you might have facial hair. You might have increased risk of hypertension. Uh, so uh, that it will make you feel better, but it can have a lot of side effects. And if you are considering this, I would the only – for a female patient, I would say you need to be under the supervision of an endocrinologist if you're if you're considering doing this, uh, and only that person should be doing that. I don't think you you should be having that in a, in a clinic situation. But uh, again, it might help you feel better, and and it might help the libido. Libido is one of those things that can be caused by so many different things. You mentioned uh, that she's taking an SNRI, which is a uh, antidepressant medication, and it can help in some of those uh, some some instances. But uh, it, it's it's really sort of hit or miss. I would discourage against taking it if I, you know I have a female patient that was in a similar situation. Uh, but if they press me on it, I'd probably send them to an endocrinologist. All right, and just a quick follow up. You know, you talked about side <clears> effects <throat> on that on that previous email, and I remember something that we talked about on uh, on the show on air, and that is, I think a lot of people freak out when they see ads for medications on the TV because it lists you know possible side effects and that sort of thing. It's so, like the, the fast car dealership where they're <laughs> listing all those things out. So that's they have to be reported, but I I think the message that you gave the other day was don't get too overly concerned when you hear about side effects of a particular medication. Sure. I mean, there's a lot that do have significant side effects, and you want to always ask about that to your physician or pharmacist. But a lot of them, just in the testing of trials uh, of, of medications in, in trials, the FDA requires that everything – uh, any kind of symptom be reported in those. So you may have less than 1% of patients that, for instance, uh, uh, said that they had a cough while they were taking a medication when it was being tested. Well, that has to be reported, and then it has to be listed out. So that those little package inserts that you you know, pull out, they have tons of information in it. Um, but that's the reason why you have so many side effects. And it doesn't necessarily mean that that medication caused that side effect. It just meant that that patient had that symptom while they were taking it. So it's, you know, it's, it could be surreptitious. It, couldn't, it, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's caused directly by that. All right, that's going to wrap us up for today. Just a reminder that uh, if you're ever listening to the show on Wednesday, uh, you can always call in and get your question answered. But if you would prefer, you can send an email. So send it to remedy at mpbonline.org. And I told uh, Dr. Jimmy I promised to do a better job of getting him the emails so that he can get you a personal response. We might read it on the air, and we might save it also for one of these special email shows. So it's remedy at mpbonline.org. Thank you, Kevin. And that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Uh, Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting, Think Radio, and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and support from listeners just like you. We will be back next Wednesday at 11 o'clock. You can tune in, uh, stay tuned in for NPR's Here and Now coming up next. <laughs> 